0: Yes, we heard this uh, morning from uh, scriptures we read together and from a passage which we tried to understand and uh, analyze a little bit closer, namely Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18, the confession of Peter as to the identity of jesus of nazareth and we saw that he understood it was revealed to him by the father in heaven that the man jesus is god the son of the living god and uh, we then thought about the necessity of messiah he is the anointed one Being man and God, he must be both to be the anointed, the the only one by God appointed Savior of man. And he has to be sinless. And we went uh, through a few uh, passages in the Old Testament which already uh, teach and Proclaim and announce that uh, Messiah will be God, true God, very God. And we shall now continue and ponder the next basic truth as to Christ, namely his true humanity, the humanity of Christ. I'm going to start from John Chapter One, and I begin with verse one. John Chapter One, verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word. Was with God and the Word was God. So here we have this uh, confession, this statement by John that Jesus is the Word, the eternal Word, the Word which was in the beginning and was with God. God With God. In God, again, we see in God is a plurality. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word, that very Word, the eternal Word, by which all things were created, and nothing that has been created came about without Him. So He is the creator of all things, the eternal One, and the Word became flesh the eternal one he became man flesh he received into his nature he was eternally the son of God eternal God with God and he received into his nature now human nature he did not change he remained God It is the word which became flesh. He didn't cease to be the eternal word, the creator word. He remained uh, the word and as such he became flesh. And only as man he could be the mediator between God and man. So in Christ was fulfilled what Job, he felt the need of someone who would be a mediator. Let's turn to Job chapter 9, verse 33. Job chapter 9, verse 33. Job 9.33, there is no umpire between us. There is no man who can mediate between us, he's saying with other words, between me and my friends. And they had uh, this contest, this uh, theological quarrel. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Um, but he speaks also of his relationship to God. In this chapter, he confesses that uh, no man, sinful man, can abide in the presence of God. In uh, uh, chapter nine, in verse three, uh, in verse two. He says, In truth I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? How can mere man be in the right before God, appear before God? And he feels that there ought to be an umpire who can mediate not only between men and men who are in quarrel with each other, but between God and man. Now the interesting thing is, that in uh, the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament, I mean the ancient Greek translation, which was uh, uh, produced before uh, Christ's birth, sometime in the second century before the Christian era, the so-called Septuaginta. Septuaginta is Latin and means 70. And it comes from that uh, Jewish legend There are so many Jewish legends. And the Jewish legend that there were 80 men who simultaneously translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek and all those 70 translations agreed completely. Of course, that's a legend. But uh, hence the the name Septuaginta, 70, Latin for 70. And in French, they call it La Septante. The 70. And the translation, the Greek translation has here, there is no mesites. And mesites is exactly the word used in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 for mediator. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Uh, mesites is one who stands in Meso. mesos is uh, in the middle of mesos. And the Mesites is a is a middleman. A middleman who can mediate. First Timothy two verse five. Here it says. First Timothy two verse five, for there is one God. And one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only mediator. And to be mediator, he had to become man. And therefore, Paul, he stresses the fact, the man Christ Jesus. He could have said only Christ Jesus. It would have been sufficient information, but he wants us to uh, grasp and to see the fact he had to be man, to be mediator between man and God. Mesites, one God and one mediator between God and man, between God and Anthropos. Uh, unfortunately, in English, there is no word for what we in Swedish say, menisha. Or in Finnish, in, uh, uh, and in many other languages, even in Hindi. Udu you have manus in Hindi for, for, for man, and, and Hebrew, you have adam for, for humankind, for a human being. But then you have ish for a man, so you, 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 have, you distinguish, but English doesn't, unfortunately. So it is mediated between God and mensh, and menisha. And he had to become truly and fully Anthropos, a human, to be our mediator. Now, how did he then become the mediator? The first step was to become man, but that was not sufficient. And then Paul continues in 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. I read again from verse 5 five and six then for there is one God and one mediator also with, between God and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. He had to give himself as a ransom a ransom antilutron, is the Greek word lyo means to, to to, to loosen, to untie, it can also mean. And antilutron. that is a price of release, the price you pay to get someone released from bondage. The price of release, and, and uh, the, the English word ransom means exactly that. The price you pay for release of someone who is bound with was caught to get him free, a price of release. And we were, as Paul says very graphically, we were sold under sin, sold under sin. We had, by our sins, sold ourselves under the power of sin and the originator of sin, of Satan, Romans 7, 7, verse 14. Romans 7, verse 14. Here Paul says, Romans 7, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, and that stands here for the sinful nature of man, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Uh, well, the Greek is literally I'm sold under sin. So the NASP is not always really accurate. It is sold under sin. That's important. Sin is not only accompanying us through life. If it were like that, you could think of getting rid of sin, but we are under sin. Sin. So the power of sin is over us. We can never get out of it. Never. We are under sin. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 3 verse 9. That Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So we were sold under sin. And Christ, he had to shed his blood to buy us, uh, to uh, ransom us from our bondage. That was the price of release. The price of release was the blood of the Son of God. He paid that price to free us. He became man in order to be able to die. As God in his divine and according to his divine nature cannot die and therefore he became man to die and by dying by shedding his blood to pay the price and thus he bought us literally he bought us with the price of his blood and we have that uh, uh, word by agorazo for instance in First Corinthians 6 verse 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 here Paul says writing to the Corinthians for you have been bought with a price agorazzo the agora is the marketplace and agorazzo means to do something in the marketplace and usually in the marketplace there is selling and buying So, agorazzo means to buy, to pay a price to get something. Christ, he has bought us with his blood. And we should never forget that. And he reminds the Corinthians of the fact, you have been bought by a price. You do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to the one who bought you. Bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And then we have that uh, same verb, Agorazzo, to buy, in, in there are several other instances, but I just suggest reading uh, Revelation five verse nine. Revelation five verse nine. The worship in heaven The worship of the Lamb slain for our sins. Revelation 5 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. You purchased with your blood. Man from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So that explains why Christ necessarily had to become man. Since God cannot die, the eternal Son of God became man in order to be able to suffer and die. And it is truly the Lord of glory, who was sacrificed on the cross. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. I read verses 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, if they if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was the Lord of glory who was crucified. The man Jesus, yes, true man, but at the same time the Lord of glory. He never shed his divine being and person and glory. I remember many years ago, I had been... um, from the years uh, 72 to 74 on the Indian subcontinent and then after those years returning home and uh, in those years I had met Christians, local Christians and thus come to believe in Christ. Travelling home, westward bound and in those days you could travel the road through Afghanistan, through Iran, through Turkey. And finally, we reached uh, the Greek border, entered into Greece, and then we saw all the Greek flags were at half-mast. So I asked uh, a man from the border control, why are the flags flying at half-mast? Has somebody died? And then he said, God has died. First I was stunned. Ah, then I understood it was Good Friday. And now after those um, more than two, two and a half, almost three years, for the first time again I entered a Christian land with a Christian confession at least. Had been in Muslim countries, in Hindu country, in a Hindu country for a long time. And I said. Yes, it is true. I wasn't a Christian. Truly, our God died for us. Now, this is not so easy to understand, and therefore there has been much uh, disputing. Is it God who died? Are we to say that God died on the cross? God cannot die. Now, we have to realize that Christ, he has two natures, divine nature, human nature, but he's one person. He's not two persons. He's one person. And if he, as to his humanity, suffers, it is the person, the divine person of the Son of God who suffers. We cannot separate him we can only distinguish the two natures. They are distinct, but they are not separate. And they cannot, they are inseparable. Uh, I have here a, a, a very helpful uh, quotation by Philip Schaff from uh, uh, his um, collection of uh, Creeds, the Creeds of Christendom. It's a volume in volume one where he deals with the ancient creeds the creeds of the ancient church and there were all those uh, Christological disputes in the first centuries, Christological is he true, true God or only God similar to God God-like like Arius said or really God and uh, what is the relationship of, of the two natures and uh, then creeds were then formulated to uh, uh, make uh, to clarify the biblical teaching and the truths as to the person of Christ, and uh, Philip Schaff, in, in uh, his um, uh, two volumes on the creeds of Christendom, he usually comments on those creeds, not always, but he, he does, and he writes as as uh, to to uh, the uh, divine and human nature of Christ. This, the whole work of Christ is to be Attributed to his person and not to the one or the other nature exclusively. To his person, not to this or to that nature exclusively. The person is the acting subject. The nature is the organ or the medium. So it's the person acting and the nature is the medium. It is the one divine human person of Christ that wrought miracles by virtue of his divine nature and who suffered through the sensorium of his human nature. The superhuman effect and infinite merit of the Redeemer's work must be ascribed to his person because of his divinity while it is his humanity alone that made him capable and liable to toil, temptation, suffering, and death. So I think that's put very clearly. In clear words, As he suffered as to his human nature, but it, it was his person, it was he who suffered. So it is proper, it is correct to say, it was the Son of God, the Lord of Glory, who hung on the cross, suffered and died for us. And thus Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Romans 5, verse 10, Romans 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. He doesn't say through the death of Jesus, that would have been correct as well, but he says through the death of his son. It was God's son who suffered and died. He, the divine son of God. Thus we can say the son of God is not able to suffer and to die as to his divine nature. The Son of God has truly suffered and died as to his human nature. But, I repeat, it is not the nature which suffers, but the person. And therefore, the Bible speaks of the death of God's Son. How that is possible, how divine and human nature can be united in one person, we cannot grasp with our minds but we believe the testimony of Scripture. And the Bible itself calls the fact that the eternal Word became flesh a mystery. It is something man would never have been able to think out, to think even. It is a mystery. It was hidden and then revealed as Christ came. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, some manuscripts has God, But it comes to the same. He is God in the context. He who was revealed in the flesh. God revealed in the flesh. That is the great mystery. And then vindicated in the spirit, that is by resurrection as Paul says. Proved to be the son of God by resurrection of the dead. Demonstrated to be son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 verse, was it 3, 4? 4, I think verse 4. So that supposes he's dying. Yes. God revealed in the flesh. Dying. Great is the mystery. A mystery. But we believe. We believe it since it is revealed. Even if we cannot grasp this with our minds. The um, German reformed theologian, Eduard Böhl. Eduard Böhl, um, he lived and worked in the late 19th century and beginning of 20th century. And he has also written a dogmatic, that is a systematic theology. And there he says around this mystery, Das Bekenntnis, nichts zu wissen, ist hier höchste Erkenntnis. The confession not to know is here the highest knowledge. The confession not to know is here the highest knowledge. There is such such a thing as docta ignorantia. Calvin used that that, uh, term somewhere. Docta ignorantia. That is learned uh, learned ignorance. Learned ignorance. And uh, I add a quotation by the Lutheran uh, German theologian. You see, Lutherans and, and, and Reformed in Germany, they have really almost um, devoured each other. It's really Galatians 5, the way how they dealt with each other for a very long time. But here we have them both together and believing and confessing the same thing. So let me read Franz Pieper from his christliche dogmatik. And I give it now in in English. The Son of God could not suffer in his deity, yet we are not by the scriptures which teach the impassibility of God. Do you understand that word, impassibility? That is, uh, impossibility to, to suffer. Parti, in Latin, is to suffer. And passible means to be able to suffer, and impassible means not to be able to suffer. Okay, so the Son of God could not suffer in his deity, yet we are not, by the scriptures which teach the impassibility of God, to dispute those passages which very clearly testify that the Son of God was born, suffered, and died. Romans 1.3, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Timothy 3.16, etc. Yet, not according, not according to his divine nature, but according to his human nature, which God had taken up into his self. This suffering, by taking into himself the human nature, is the suffering of the Son of God. Because the human nature does not exist as a known person, but as belonging to the person of the Son of God. Luther says, rightly, and I will give that short quotation first in German, and then I give it in English. Die Person leidet und stirbt. Nun ist die Person wahrhaftiger Gott. Darum ist recht geredet. Gottes Sohn leidet, denn obwohl das eine Stück, das ich so rede, als die Gottheit, nicht leidet, so leidet doch die Person, welche Gott ist, am anderen Stück, als an der Menschheit. Now in English, it is the person which suffers and dies. Now that is Luther. Luther said, it is the person which suffers and dies. The person is true God. And therefore, it is correct to to say the Son of God suffers, though the other part, if I may thus speak, the deity does not suffer. Yet the person, which is God, suffers in the other part, the humanity. Now, the doctors of the ancient church, they struggled with the proper wording of that mystery. And there was a certain Kuril. He was... um, Bishop of Alexandria. He lived in the 5th century, early 5th century. And he put it, uh, put this paradox into this um, uh, classical uh, form. I give it in Greek. He was one of the Eastern church, Greek church. Apathos epathen. And that means without suffering he suffered, or unsufferingly rather, Literally, apathos, unsufferingly, epathen he suffered. Yes. Now we have this testimony of the Bible. There is a person, one of the same per- one and the same person, who is God and who is man, and that seems to uh, natural to the natural mind a contradiction. You can believe in the concept of God without having the spirit of God. Of course, the Bible says that. And uh, there are religious people, they believe in God, they have a certain uh, fear of the divine. But they refuse to accept such an idea that God can become man. No, 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 that's that's impossible. God is not a man. And uh, you can even point to uh, scriptures which say exactly that very thing. God is not a man. God is not a man. Uh, let's turn to Numbers 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. It is saying Balaam, or is it Biliam, in in the German Bible it's Biliam, in the English Bible it's Balaam. It is Balaam uh, prophesying against his will, prophesying good things over Israel. And then uh, in that context he says, Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man. That he should lie, God is not a man. That is an axiom, that is an axiom, God is not a man. By no means. And we have uh, God himself affirming that he is not a man. Uh, Hosea. Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. God is speaking through the prophet, saying, Hosea 11, verse 9. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. And vice versa, man is not God. Man is not God. And that is also a common uh, consciousness of man. Man is not God. God is not man and man is not God. Uh, We have a this uh, episode in uh, Second Kings and we read there about uh, the Ramian or Syrian general, a commander in chief, Naaman, who has um, Leprosy. And then he hears by a girl, a girl from Israel in his household, that there's a prophet in Israel, he, can, he, he could heal, he could heal my master. And he goes to the king, Naaman, and the king writes a letter. And evidently he didn't really understand um, the whole thing, so he writes to the king, the king of uh, Syria, the king of Aram, writes... ...to uh, the king in Israel. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse, verses 6 and 7. He, that is Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel saying... ...and now, as this letter comes to you... This is quotation from the letter of the king... ...of the king of uh, the Arameans. And now, as this letter comes to you... ...you, king of, of Israel... Behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure the man of his leprosy? I am but a man. I am a mere man. I am a God. Now how can that be that God can be man and that there has been a man on this earth and there still is a man, a glorified man in heaven who is man and God. Man and God. Now this apparent contradiction can only be solved in the revealed truth of God, the revealed the revealed truth of the Bible and we receive that truth by faith if this revelation is not received by faith the Bible remains a closed book you may find very much interesting information about culture about history about uh, religions and so on reading the Bible but it remains a closed book that is you will Not receive the Bible as the word of life if you do not believe this revealed truth that Christ is God and that Christ is man. And that is really the very heart of the the biblical revelation that God in Christ became man to be our Savior. True man, true God. So we can say it is the embodiment of all biblical revelation. the fact of incarnation, and that the God incarnate suffers and dies for the salvation of sinners. Now we can um, consider several reasons why the incarnation was necessary which all has to do with salvation christ had to become man to reveal god fully completely john 1 verse 18 john 1 verse 18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God or the only begotten Son it's again a matter of manuscripts who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him the Greek word is exegesen out outon whence the, the, the term exegesis exegesis is derived and that means to bring out the truth of something. To bring out something which is hidden, to bring it out. Ago means to guide, and ex-ago is to, to lead out, to bring forth. So he has, he has by his incarnation, brought forth, and thus granted the knowledge, full knowledge of God. And why did he have to become man in order to reveal God fully? To reveal God to man. To reveal God to man. And this revelation is a revelation which man can endure. In Christ, man can see God and live. If God were to reveal himself fully, as Luther says in one place, in Nuda Maestate, in his naked majesty, in his... Pure, uh, divine being we all would be consumed on the spot. So in order to reveal God fully so that man can endure and accept re- that revelation, he had to become man. He had to become man in order to destroy Satan to fulfill the promise or the announcement given In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, Genesis 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and die doing it. Die doing it. And we have Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2 verse 14 therefore since the children and that is the children are those whom he came to redeem verse 13 we must read verse 13 that we understand who the children are it is Christ speaking saying I will put my trust in him and again behold I and the children whom God has given me the souls the persons to be saved given to him he calls them children, and he brings them to God the Father. Here are the children, the ones who gave to me. And then verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, of f- uh, flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil so he became man in order to destroy Satan to break his power he became man and we have heard that today already I just mentioned it again he became man because God had decreed that man was to rule over all creation and this will be fulfilled when Christ comes again to rule over this earth then Genesis 1, 26 will be fulfilled because it never has been fulfilled but then it will be. So we had to become man so that that scripture might be fulfilled. Then we have a third a, a, a fourth reason he became man in order to be the judge of all men. John says it and Paul says it that God has appointed a man to be the judge of all men. Act seventeen thirty one. Act seventeen thirty one. Paul speaking on the Reyos Pagos in Asen, saying, because he, God, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And the Lord himself has said that he has the power to judge, is going to be the judge of all men since he is himself man. John 5 John Chapter Five Verse Twenty Seven John Chapter Five Verse Twenty Seven And he gave him, that is, God gave him the Son Authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. A man will judge man. Why is that? Every man one day will stand in front of the great white throne, and the one sitting on the great white throne is the judge of all men. And in the light of him, of that person, of the light of the perfect man, he will then see all his crookedness his ugliness, his impurity, his sinfulness. And then he will confess, thy judgment is just. So a man will judge all men. And seeing that man, every man will know, it was in fact my responsibility to be as him, a perfect man, but I never was. Of course we are born in sin, but whose fault is it? We sinned. We sinned in Adam, as you said yesterday. Adam's sin is our sin. So he he became man in order to be the judge of all men. He became man in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest. But we are going to look into his high priestly office later. So I leave it at that. He became man in order to be the firstborn among many brethren. And that is so unspeakably glorious, to be the firstborn among many. We are going to share not only his nature, but also his glory. We are going to share his glory. And had this not been revealed in the Bible, none would have thought of it. And none would dare to think or to say such a thing. But it is revealed truth. Hebrews two eleven. Hebrews two eleven. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He who sanctifies who has sanctified us, Christ by his blood, and he who sanctifies and those that are sanctified are. One. And therefore he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then comes the Bible, verse, to prove the truth, I will proclaim your name to my brethren," Psalm 22. And then we have Romans 8, Romans 8, 29, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He had to become man in order to be exactly that firstborn one of his many brethren. And finally, he became man to be the heir and of all things and to make us fellow heirs. He is the heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Here it says, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, why should he have to become heir of all things? Now, man had lost everything in sin. Man had lost everything in sin. He had lost life. He had lost the rain. He had lost glory. He had lost light. He had lost God. He had lost everything. Now Christ becomes man and by his dying and suffering for us as our substitute and redeeming us, he makes us to inherit what he as man Received from God and he never lost it because he never sinned. And then he lets us inherit all things which we had lost by sin. So Romans 8, verse 17 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8:17. Romans 8:17. If children heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So we see how the truth of the incarnation, the truth, the truth of the true humanity of Christ, is as important for the whole work of salvation as the truth of his deity. True God, true man and that man was sinless true man sinless man and I just turn to four scriptures for his sinlessness there are of course many more four and with those four scriptures I uh, end this uh, address Luke 135 Luke 1.35 The Annunciation of the Birth of the Saviour to the Virgin Mary and Mary, she responds to that announcement Luke 1.34 Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The first Holy Child and the only holy child ever born without original sin holy from birth sinless from birth no inherited sin and then we have the threefold the threefold testimony of the apostles paul peter and john as to the sinlessness of Christ. Second Corinthians five, twenty one. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. That, of course, does not mean that he didn't know what sin is. He really knows what sin is. But he knew no sin in the sense as Adam and Eve came to know sin. How did they come to know sin? By becoming sinners. By getting under the power of sin. This is how we know sin. As such, we are under the power of sin. He knew no sin. That is, in on him, over him, in him, sin had no place. Nothing. He knew no sin. And then we have the testimony of Peter. First Peter chapter two verse twenty two. First Peter 2 verse 22 speaking about Christ he says who committed no sin he knew no sin and he committed no sin so there, there were no sinful deeds either no sin in nature and no sinful deeds he committed no sin and then first epistle of John chapter 3 verse 5 first John 3 verse 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin he knew no sin he did no sin in him No sin. So we have seen now this evening the necessity of the incarnation of him being man, becoming man, being man, and the necessity of his sinlessness. He had to be sinless to be our substitute. And for that truth we worship him. Let us give thanks together. Eternal Son of God, sent by the Father and coming by your free will and consent, you came to us, you became a man, born of a virgin. The one sinless, perfect, true man. And true God. Truly great is the mystery of godliness God revealed in the flesh. And we thank you that we have your own word giving us testimony of you and your spirit confirming that testimony and convincing us. So we receive the truth of you and of your divine matchless glorious person and we worship you and we look forward to the day when we will see you from face to face you have entered the glory of heavens and you have become our forerunner and we are going to follow you and be there where you are and again we pray with growing longing hasten that day lord jesus come come Amen.